today we're talking about how not to marry a jerk or a jerkette. How not to marry a jerk or a jerkette. How to avoid a jerk in matrimony. That is the goal, that you're going to leave church today equipped with a set of evaluative questions that you can take and you can, some of you say, well, I've already been married for 30 or 40 years. You can teach them to your grandchildren or your children, your children's children. These are a group of questions that we can ask to help us to evaluate whether or not this relationship and with which I'm involved is something I should continue. It's a healthy question to ask. One of the most famous engineering aeronautical disasters ever occurred on May 6, 1937 at Naval Air Station Lakehurst, New Jersey. You remember it, the Hindenburg disaster. 7.25 p.m. in the e evening, you've seen the old newsreel videos of the Hindenburg bursting into flames and crashing to the grounds. Of the 97 people on board, there were 35 fatalities. It's hard to believe anyone survived that, but most people did. There was one worker on the ground who was killed, so that's a total of 36 fatalities. Most of us, if you've ever seen the old video on a History Channel or something, you remember the famous radio broadcast and the radio announcer Herbert Morrison's cry of, oh, the humanity, oh, the humanity, as the Hindenburg was crashing and bursting into flames. To give you an idea of how large the Hindenburg was, I'm told that a 747 Model 400 was 231 feet long. The Hindenburg was 776 feet long, more than three times as long, uh, as, as, lo three times as, long as a 747 Model 400. Amazing. Now, what I'm about to say, I say with great caution, because I realize that I'm preaching in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, the late Dr. Zumwalt, one of my, I just held in the highest regard, was a longtime member here, uh, head of the aeronautical engineering department at Wichita State, a brilliant man. And then many of you were his students. Some of you worked in the aeronautical engineering industry for years, and some of you still do so. I had lunch with Brother Alvin last week, and he's describing all these tests on the airplane they're working on. So I say what I'm about to say with great caution because I'm a preacher about to get into an aeronautical disaster, and that could turn into a preaching disaster here in Wichita. We don't want that to happen. But there's all these theories about why the Hindenburg crashed and exploded. Most of them revolve around a thunderstorm which had just passed through Lakehurst, and there's some suspicion of uh, some static electricity, and when they dropped the ground ropes, perhaps it created some sort of ground. I, I am not qualified to speak on such things. Here's what I know. It was filled with millions of cubic feet of hydrogen. And if you want to know why it exploded and burned, it's because it was filled with millions of cubic feet of hydrogen. If it had, had been filled with helium instead of hydrogen, it would have not have exploded and burned that way. So I make a simple observation as someone who's not in the area of specialty that so many of you are. And that is, it was, the reason it crashed and burned was it was filled with combustible material. Too easy. Well, unfortunately, many people are doing the same thing with relationships. They are building relationships and filling them with combustible material. And sooner or later, there's going to be an awesome explosion, a fireball relationally, and it's going to be a spectacle that everyone watches as it crashes and burns because the relationship is being filled with relational hydrogen, if you will. It's going to explode and crash and burn. So the goal today is to try to avoid building a relationship full of all this combustible material. Instead, what we want to do is build a relationship full of godly material that sustains even the roughest storms in life. 
So how do we avoid such a relationship? By building relationships that contain holy, godly material that gives stability and strength. And I use the word jerk or jerk out. There's an interesting background to the word jerk. Apparently, according to one theory, the word jerk comes from, uh, they used to call these stations out on the railroad jerkwater stations where the only reason the town existed was there was a water tower there and the steam engines would jerk a rope and fill up with water. And so that kind of where the word jerk came from. We don't know, but here's what it means. A jerk is a tedious and ineffectual person, an annoyingly foolish person. They are cruel. They are rude. They are small-minded. No one wants to marry someone like that. Someone is saying right now, what if you've already married someone like that? Then you need to come back to church next week. When we take the second half of Song of Songs chapter 2, we'll talk about the little foxes in marriage that kind of destroy things. But in Song of Songs chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, there are some important qualities that are listed about a godly relationship. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take about 10 or 15 minutes and I'm going to walk through Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And you're going to see the qualities of a godly relationship. And then, after that, we're going to move to 10 evaluative questions that are based on biblical godly wisdom. So, you ready? So, let's look at Song of Songs, chapter 2. And I'm going to, I'm going to begin by describing these characteristics of a, a godly relationship by going back to the in-love experience last week. If you were here last week, we talked about Song of Songs, chapter 1, and the in-love experience. I like to spell the in-love experience as L-U-U-U-V-V-V-V, love. And I wish I had Barry White's voice to get the emphasis in, right? love and so you're in love one hormone talks to another hormone says let's have a party and we talked about the in love experience last week it's nothing wrong with it if it's put in the right perspective from a biblical perspective song of songs one talks all about it and there's something interesting that I scooted over last week I want to point out to you the first sign of a godly romance one that you want to embrace is that it is praised by others look at song of songs chapter 1 verse 4 notice what it says and the second half of Song of Songs 1-4, this chorus that enters, remember, this, there's a reason this is called the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, because there are singers here, and a chorus breaks in. The second half of verse 4, it says, we will rejoice in you, referring to the two young lovers, and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. When a romance is godly, other people offer praise, especially people that love Jesus Christ. So a godly romance is praised by other people. People from the outside looking in, give an external evaluation and say, what you guys have going on is a good thing. One Sunday, I'd been dating Lisa for several months. And one Sunday night, I was 19 years old. We were at Sunday night church. And we're sitting uh, on one of the pews. And as Pastor Harry was preaching, there were two girls sitting behind me that I had grown up with. I, I grew up in a rural community. We all went to the same classes in elementary school. They were Laura and Regina. They were, I, I liked them both. They were nice people. And they're sitting behind me. I'd grown up with them. They had known me all my life, which means they'd seen me at my best and at my worst. And as Pastor Harry started preaching, I'd been dating Lisa for several months. One of those young ladies leaned up and whispered in my ear and said, I want you to know we approve. Now, let me tell you what they were saying. First of all, they'd known me all my life. 
And so they had seen me bring other girls to church. They said, how many other girls did you bring to church? This is my sermon. This is not your sermon, but it had happened. And no one had ever said that before about anyone else I brought. But when I brought Lisa, the people I grew up with said, we want you to know we approve. The first time Lisa met my family was at my dad's 50th birthday party at a steak and ale. And they set her with all the children down at one end of the table. And my three sisters interrogated her. And that's the first time my mother met her. And for the next month, my mom was floating around the house. She was just singing hymns of praise to Jesus and asking all these questions about Lisa. She'd never asked that or acted like that about anyone I brought home before. I said, now, Dr. Branch, how many girls did you date and bring home before you met Lisa? This is my sermon. This is not your sermon. You're asking the wrong questions. But the fact is, it happened. What I want to point out to you is, when I started dating this lady, other people that love Jesus from the outside looked in and said, hey, you know what? Uh, we can praise that. It's praised by other people. Now, the flip side is if godly people start asking all sorts of questions and sending up warning signs, it's something to consider. So a godly romance is praised by others, especially godly people. The romance, a godly romance, secondly, builds self-confidence. Notice what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. The lady speaking, the Shulamith, the bride, she says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Some of you gardeners here today, the terms here, rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys, those flowers in the text are not the ones you would know by that name from modern botany. They were different. The rose of Sharon here was most likely this... um, this sort of tulip-like flower that is unique to the eastern Mediterranean, and it is native to that area. It is, has a beautiful, vivid, scarlet-red color. It stands out. If you can imagine that sort of desert-dry environment and this beautiful velvet-red flower, it stands out. And then when it says the lily of the valleys, most likely it's hard to know exactly which flower is in mine. But the only lily indigenous to Palestine uh, looks somewhat like a white daisy. It's beautiful. And again, here's what she's saying. Do you remember last week we looked at her conflicted feelings about her appearance? She's saying, well, I, my, I, my family made me go take care of the vineyard and the sun has burned me. I took care of the family's vineyard, but my own vineyard, her appearance, I haven't been able to take care of. And she's very self-conscious about the way she looks. But here, notice what she says. I am the what? The rose of Sharon. I'm the lily of the valley. She feels good about herself. A godly romance will inspire self-confidence in yourself, not self-doubt. One of the most famous romances from church history was between Martin Luther and Catherine von Bora. Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation. Now, here's what's interesting. Martin Luther had dedicated himself to be a monk, which means he took a vow of celibacy. Catherine von Bora had dedicated herself to become a nun, which means she took a vow of celibacy. But in the Reformation, as they get back to the Bible, they both become convinced that you don't have to take a vow of celibacy to serve the Lord. They can become convinced this is unbiblical. So it's going to sound strange, but Catherine von Bora and four other women were smuggled out of the, uh, the nunnery one night in fish barrels. Can you imagine that? Smoke of the mountain fish barrels. That's in a unique uh, fragrance to wear. We talked about fragrances last week. You got a herring smell on you. But she smuggle her out in a fish barrel, and they find wives for the other four nuns, but Catherine von Bora is turning down all the other suitors, and she lets it be known, I'm not going to marry anyone except Martin Luther. She puts the word out, I'm not going to marry anyone but him. And he was 41, she was 25, a 16-year difference. And the marriage was scandalous because they both taken vows of celibacy and now they get married to each other and there's an age difference and all that stuff's happening. 
And they fell madly and deeply in love. It's one of the most famous happy marriages in the history of the church. In fact, Martin Luther referred to her name was Catherine von Bora, and he called her, his nickname for her was Kitty My Rib. Kitty My Rib. And he commented on the, uh, the, the in love experience that we talked about last week. And here's what Martin Luther said. He went through that with her at age 41. He said, the first love is drunken. He says that in love experience is like being drunk. When the intoxication wears off, then comes the real marriage, love. Isn't that an interesting statement? When the intoxication wears off, then comes the real marriage, love. And they became so much more effective. She managed their entire estate. He was living in a former Augustinian monastery. And she managed this thing, turned it into a, a thriving business. She becomes much more being married to him than she ever would have by herself. He finds constant encouragement through her in his preaching, in his ministry, working through the Reformation. And because of her influence in his life, he's able to accomplish much more than he ever could have alone. She grieved his death deeply. But together... They built each other up, and each of them accomplished far more together than they could have alone. Godly romances instill confidence, self-confidence. They make you better together than what you could ever be alone. So they not only are praised by other people, but they instill self-confidence. A godly romance cultivates protective care. Would you look with me at verse 4? says this. Well, let's verses 3 and 4. This protective care, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so my beloved is among the young men. He's providing shade. Shade is protection. And so here's a picture of protection. And then he has brought me into his banquet hall and his banner over me is love. Oh my goodness, the way that the Old Testament scholars bite their fingernails over verse 4. It is wearisome when the meaning is obviously clear. The idea here is this is language of royalty. And when the king is present, his banner is present. The king, Wherever the king's at, the king's banner is there. Does that make sense? When you look out across the camp, where's the king headquartered? You look for his banner and the tent with the king's banner over it. That's where the king is at. And so she's saying, he's brought me into his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. He's placed down a banner of love over me. Do you see the images of protection here? He's like a tree. He's like a shade. Some of you ladies say, well, my husband used to be like a tree, but now he's shaped more like a large termite mound. Well, I mean, he still provides shade, right? Amen. So uh, he's, uh, there was one, one husband that woke up one morning and he was looking in the mirror after 30 years of marriage. He looked at himself in the mirror and he was kind of feeling down. He said, honey, will you love me? Will you love me when I'm bald and fat and gray and old? She said, oh, honey, I do. Right? So um, I will, I said, do. But this protection, his banner over me is love. Do you see the image here? Where the king is at, he plants down his banner. That means when you go into that tent, you're under the king's protection. His banner over me is love. This is protective care. In fact, this verse is where we get a beautiful children's song. Do any of you remember the little children's song? His banner over me is love. Do you remember that song? I, and, and let me tell you, I, I want to come back to this verse at the close, but would you sing this with me for just, I just love this song. It brings back happy memories. 
He is the vine and we are the branches. His banner over me is love. Do you know this? He is the vine and we are the branches. His banner over me is love. He is the vine and we are the branches. His banner over me is love. God's banner over me is love. Jesus is the rock of my salvation. His banner over me is love. Jesus is the rock of my salvation. His banner over me is love. Jesus is the rock of my salvation his banner over me is love God's banner over me is love what a picture of protection right here in the song of songs and that's what a godly relationship does it builds up someone else it protects someone else it's praised by others but notice also a godly romance strives toward moral boundaries established by God look at verse 7 would you I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the hinds of the field. This is poetry. This is eloquent poetry and appealing to nature. A lot of nature themes in the Song of Songs. And the NASB, which I, I like very much, says that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. And so the idea is this is discussing his, his sweetie is asleep and don't wake her up until she pleases. But actually, I think the ESV gets it right. When it says, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So it's not, the word love here is not a tender name for his girlfriend. She's my love. No, the idea is this is talking about, frankly, sexual love. That's in context. That's what it means. Do not arouse or awaken love, sexual love, until it pleases. The ESV gets it right. And so this is a theme that's repeated three times in the Song of Songs. This same phrase is repeated here in Song of Songs 2-7, chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 8, verse 4. It is, the, it is central, this little phrase, do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. This is central to the moral understanding, the ethical sub, substructure of the Song of Songs. It is about ethical and moral purity. The word love here in chapter 2, verse 7, most certainly applies, implies sexual desire. This is a gentle warning against the arousal of sexual passion before it pleases. Premarital chastity is praised in the Song of Songs. Although this couple is in love, they will allow their relationship to proceed at the proper pace. This includes waiting for the right time and place for consummation. That is marriage. So let me say something. I want all the single adults and teenagers to listen to the preacher. It is not a sin for a single person to desire to have sex. God made us to be sexual beings. But it is a sin and it is wrong to desire and to want the pleasure of sex outside of God's boundaries for marriage. So I'm going to use an illustration. I grew up in Paulding County, Georgia. Please forgive me. Sometimes I just have to use illustrations that speak to me and my kind, okay? So, uh, I have a Mustang GT uh, convertible, 2010. Some of you are like, a Baptist preacher shouldn't drive a Mustang GT. I do it to keep the Pharisees honest, right? It just gives them something to talk about. It has Roush exhaust on it. It's really loud. It's obnoxious and it's fast. It'll burn the back tires off and, and Brother uh, Paul can give me a ticket going down. Anyway, but it's, um, it's an awesome car. So, let me ask you a question. If I went out here on South Broadway and I decided to drag, drag race somebody on South Broadway... Is that a sin? Is that a sin to drag race on South Broadway? This is not hard. I'm not, not a trick question. Is that a sin to drag race on South Broadway? Yes. yes. Okay. Why? 
because South Broadway is not designed for drag racing. It is a, a thoroughfare designed for normal traffic. And if I drag race on South Broadway, I hurt myself and I hurt other people eventually. Got it? But if I went to Heartland Park in Topeka, do you know what Heartland Park is? It is a culturally significant center here in the state of Kansas. It's a drag strip, Heartland Park. And you can pay your money, and if you bring a helmet with you, you can drag race your car at Heartland Park. Now, let me ask, is it a sin to drag race at Heartland Park? Now, some of the Pharisees are going, yeah, it's a sin. Preachers all not drag race. Oh, well. But let's say I did. And so I go to Heartland Park. Is it a sin to drag race at Heartland Park? The answer is why? Because Heartland Park is designed for drag racing. There are officials, there are safety barriers. It's designed for that. And in that environment, it can be a fun hobby and an exciting place to go. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Marriage is God's drag strip for sex. Outside of marriage, it gets deadly in a hurry. But inside the safe constraints of God's covenant of marriage, it is a gift from God to you and I. Do not arouse or awaken love until it desires. Some of you say, I've already failed. I've, I've lost my purity. You don't have to let the defeats of yesterday determine your future. There's always a new start with Jesus. Somebody say amen. Amen. There's grace in the name of Jesus Christ, and you may have failed, but grace is available, and you can start out on a new path of purity today with Jesus Christ. Some of you have already made a choice. You've been living godly. There's some teenagers here, and your friends have called you weird. They've called you names because you're going God's way, and you've maintained your purity. Don't let this world call you weird. Don't let this world call you strange because you're going God's way. Listen, there's no shame in doing it God's way. Listen, somebody comes to you and they tell you, you're dating them. Well, if you love me, you'll, you'll have, go to bed with me. You'll have sex with me. Listen very carefully. They're not saying that because they love you. They're saying that because they love themselves. And they're not concerned about what's best for you. They're concerned about what makes them feel good. Um, if you're a Christian couple here and you love Jesus and, and you're trying to go God's way, but you started sleeping together, well, the first thing you need to do is Stop. But I will tell you, trying to stop having sex after you start is like trying to push a train back up the mountain. My question is, if you're both of marriageable age and you're mature and you both love Jesus, why aren't you getting married? You say, that's old-fashioned preaching. It's an old-fashioned Bible. You don't have to let the defeats of yesterday determine your future. And if you have failed in this area, I am telling you, God can give you victory. You can have a marriage that is a marriage of joy and peace, even if there's sexual failure in the past. There's power in the blood of Jesus Christ to transform the greatest mistakes we made in life. And God can give you victory. He can, he's that kind of God. But godly romance is Strive toward the moral boundaries God has established. Godly romances are surrounded by holy excitement. There's some strange verses in verses 8 and 9. Do you see this in verses 9? She said, by the way, she's, behold, he's coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. You know what Lisa told me? She said, the only thing you leaped over is Truman the dog, right? <laughs> but um, he's leaping over the hills. Some of you men say, I, I can't even roll over the hill. Leap. But nonetheless... And But then she says, he's looking through the windows. He's peering through the lattice. There's nothing strange here. He just can't wait to see her. Do you see the imagery? He's looking. Where's she at? I can't wait to see her. There, there's an excitement. 
So a godly romance has a holy excitement. So if these are the characteristics of a godly romance, what are some questions we should ask? Somebody say, I'm ready for the questions. All righty. Uh, y'all need to get some Pentecostals in here to help you out. I know, but it's number one. Here's the questions. If that's what a godly romance looks like, here's what 10 questions you need to ask. If I don't, if, if that's what a godly romance looks like, I don't want to marry a jerk or jerk yet, this difficult person, live a life of misery. What are some warning signs? Number one, this is the daddy in me talking. Notice the male pronoun, a daddy of two daughters. He's lazy and he won't work. Ladies, if that man won't work now, putting a wedding ring on his hand will not change that flaw in his character. Help me out, daddies. Come on now. You're not helping the preacher. Proverbs 15, 19. The way of the lazy is as a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. This hedge of thorns, that means the slothful person's always got an excuse. Well, I couldn't do this job. I couldn't do that job. They fired me here. Proverbs 19.5 says this, laziness cast into a deep sleep and an idle man will suffer hunger. Ladies, if you marry a lazy man, you will suffer hunger with him. Men, who cares if you can get to level 34 on some first person shooter game on your video? Go out and have a real adventure. Get a job. A couple of years ago, I'd come. I'd, I'd just gotten back from overseas, and I was really amped up. Uh, uh, Brother Hans and I were talking about the military many times, and brother, I was amped up. You know, I'd been around this hua 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 stuff, and one, one, one. I got back to the seminary, and I was teaching a class. This young man came up to me after class in uh, September of 2012, and he said, "Dr. Branch, I have a question. I want to know how to witness to my daddy." I said, "Okay, well, what's up with your dad?" He said, "Well, my dad's not a Christian. He's mad at all of us, and he won't come to church." And I said, "Well, give me some situational awareness." Short story. Dad had a wife, three sons. All three of the sons were adults. Uh, two of the sons who were adults didn't have a job. The third one had gotten married, moved back with his kids, and had a part-time job. And they were all wondering why Daddy didn't want to go to church with them. I said, let me make sure you understand this. Your dad is the only one in the house working. He's got three grown sons. None of y'all have a full-time job. That's right. And you want to know how to witness to your daddy. He said, that's right. I said, listen to me. Go get a J-O-B. You want to witness to your daddy, go get a job. He said, what do you mean? I said, no wonder the man's angry. He's the only man in his house working, supporting all y'all. He said, well, I can't find a job. I said, you're lying. And I'm not making fun of the company I'm about to mention. I want you to hear me. There's no shame. I'm not making a joke now. Listen to me. There is no shame in working at Walmart. Somebody said, listen, I hope they bury me at Walmart so my wife and family come see me. You went from right, but uh, after I'm dead, but... Um, there's no shame. There, y'all hear what I'm saying? There's no shame in that whatsoever. Hey, there's no shame in working at Quick Trip. I go there every morning and get happy hours. The only happy hour Baptist preachers go to. And I get my, my large root beer for 99 cents. But I told him, I said, you're lying. Walmart's hiring every day. And to his credit, he went out and applied at eight different Walmarts in Kansas City and got a job. That's an amen point. You hear what I'm saying, though? Ladies... You want a man that is a provider, not a freeloader. He's lazy and he won't work. That's the daddy of me coming out. We'll move more quickly here. Here she is a liar. John 8, 44 says, Satan is the father of lies. If the person you are dating habitually lies, he or she is siding with the devil. Your marriage will be characterized by mistrust since you will never know if your spouse is telling you the truth. It's a liar. Don't do it. 
don't marry them. Number three, he or she has a track record of promiscuity. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee sexual immorality. The fruit of the Spirit, the, the ninth fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23 is self-control. Someone who is promiscuous is not exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. A person who lacks sexual restraint prior to marriage is not likely to become a faithful husband or wife after marriage. Long-established patterns of behavior are the best indicators of future behavior. Listen carefully. Write this down. I don't have it in the bulletin. I should have put it in there, but listen carefully. You ready? The best indicator of how somebody's going to act after they're married is the way they act before they're married. Can I say that again? The best indicator of how somebody's going to act after they are married is the way they act when? Before they're married. And if he's lazy and a liar and sexually promiscuous before marriage, guess what he's going to be after marriage? Or guess what she's going to be after marriage? Number four, I'm a victim. They're always a victim. You want someone who overcomes obstacles and doesn't get bitter and doesn't make excuses, not a whiner. One thing you can, if, if you want to know about marrying someone who has a victim, uh, listen to what they say about their sports teams. Do they say things like this? Well, I was on the football team, but the coach never let me play because he didn't like me. Well, I was on the soccer team and I get cooked off because that coach didn't like me. Or I had this job and that, that boss was out to get me. And I had this job. I could have applied over there, but they just didn't. They're always a victim. You do not want a victim. You want someone who takes responsibility. I'm a victim. Number five, they are vulgar. Luke 6, 45, Jesus Christ said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh." Adrian Rogers put it this way. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. A dirty mouth reflects a dirty heart. They are vulgar. Number five. Number six, he or she looks at pornography. They check out other men or women. Matthew 5, 28, the Lord Jesus said, if a man looks after a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery with her in her heart. Our culture is swimming in a sea of pornography. Pornography devalues women, and it destroys the goodness and the glory of God's wonderful gift of sex, and it preconditions someone to be sexually unfaithful. Listen, if he doesn't keep his lies on you long enough when he's dating you, ladies, he won't keep his heart on you either. Men, if she doesn't keep her eyes on you when you're dating, she will not keep her heart on you either. He or she looks at pornography. They check out other men or women. Number seven, ladies, he avoids responsibility. I'm sorry, I'm a daddy with two daughters. Guys, that's just what's happening. Um, my, my youngest, my oldest daughter went out on her first date when I was overseas with the Army. I interviewed that boy via Skype. I got three of my NCOs standing behind me. Uh, they won't let chaplains carry a weapon. I don't know who came up with that rule. Boo, I don't like that. But they, I had three guys. I, well, they, went got, they had their weapons standing with Sergeant Probst, Sergeant Art, and uh, Sergeant Probst, and Sergeant Campbell. They all stand behind me. Big old boys, too. They're giant. I was interviewing that boy on Skype. I said, you see these men right here? I said, they love their chaplain. You hurt my daughter. I'm going to take you out. I'll start a prison ministry. It's okay, man. I'm just so... I'm, he avoids responsibility. Real men accept the responsibility of being a spiritual leader. If he is 30 years old, living in mom's basement, and more concerned about playing video games and building a career, drop him immediately. And every daddy said, he or she is disrespectful to other people. One of the things you should do when you're dating someone, how do they treat the table server? How do they treat the person behind the counter at Chick-fil-A when you're ordering your sweet tea? That's awesome. But I, I, how do they treat people who cannot help them? How do they talk to their family? How do they talk to their little brother or sister? If they're disrespectful to those folks, sooner or later, they're going to be disrespectful to you. Number nine and ten go together. 
He or she is a hothead, someone who becomes quickly angry. Proverbs 29, 22, an angry man stirs up strife and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. There's a difference between godly anger and uh, rage. You don't want to marry a rageaholic. And that really leads to number 10, he or she is abusive. I say this with no intent at humor, as deadly serious as I possibly can be. So I want all the girls to listen to me. I say this from the bottom of my heart. Any boy ever lays a hand on you, you call the police and you drop him as quickly as you can. He is not the man for you. Godly men don't hit women. Cowards. I, I, I don't have any respect for that. If a person you're dating ever engages in physical abuse, immediately stop the relationship with that person. I mean immediately. These 10 questions, this is all the combustible stuff. This is the relational hydrogen we're talking about. You understand what we're looking at? And man, if you fill your relationship with stuff like that, you're headed towards an explosion. And everybody's going to see. There's a verse that has always tugged at my heart and, and broken my heart for lost people and people far away from Christ. It's Proverbs 27. It says this, To a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. Do you hear that? To a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. And some of you have been so hungry for love. You're famished for love. You grew up in a home where nobody ever said anything good or positive. Dad was gone. Mom split. You bounced from house to house. And to a famished person, any bitter thing is sweet. And you've gone through relationship, relationship, relationship with people that were abusive, that were vulgar, that took advantage of you, that exploited you. And you thought this is what love is because you're so hungry. Any bitter thing is sweet. And you've been filling your life with this combustible material. And it's blood to pain and heartache and brokenness i want to go back to song of songs chapter 2 verse 4 i know it's talking about the couple but it's a great picture of jesus christ he's invited me to his banqueting table his banner over me is love listen i was starving just like mephibosheth broken by a fall i didn't have any hope and the next thing you know i'm dining at the king's table when you're saved it's a feast it's listen jesus doesn't give you you've been eating the scraps and you've been dumpster diving in the relationships of this world you need to get deep in the love of Jesus Christ. Listen, he doesn't feed scraps. He doesn't throw you the leftovers. It is a banquet of agape. It is a banquet of grace. It's overflowing with mercy. It's the love of Jesus Christ. Listen, when Jesus Christ comes into a life, he puts his banner down. There's a new king in town. I've gotten off the throne. King Jesus is in control. He's put his banner down. His banner over me is love. It's the eternal love of God. It desires my best. And let me tell you, you've been hungry You've been hungry, and every bitter thing's tasted sweet to you. You don't know what love is till you met the Lord Jesus Christ. And somebody this morning, Jesus needs to put the banner down in your life today. You need Jesus Christ today. Every head bowed and every eye closed. No one looking up, no one looking around. Miss Lisa's going to come. Brother Mark's going to come. Listen, I, as best as I could, I've tried to preach to you these warning signs and the, the good things. Listen carefully. You're here this morning. Uh, there's so many things that we need to talk about for response. Listen, this is our time of appeal. Ask that no one be leaving. This is the most important time of the service. You're here this morning, and you have gone to the table of every bitter thing this world has to offer. I cannot promise you that if you give your life to Jesus Christ, you won't have any more problems. But what I can promise you is, 
when Jesus takes over, his love and his peace and his mercy is with you regardless of what problem you face. And you've run from person to person to person. This morning, we're inviting you to let Jesus be the Lord of your life. How do I do that? In just a moment, we're going to have an invitation. And while I'm standing here at the front, Pastor Andy and Pastor Chris are here with me. My wife Lisa is here. We have other ladies here. We're going to invite you to come. And we're going to pray with you. These pastors, these ladies will pray with you and explain to you how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and let him put his banner down in your life and what that looks like. They're going to take all the time that you need. Some of you here this morning, you say, Pastor Allen, if I'm honest, I believed on Jesus years ago, but you talked about God's standards. I've made some horrible choices in relationships. I've made some very bad choices with my sexual ethics. Is there hope for me? Yes, there's grace for you. And you can have a new start today, and you can make a choice to move forward today going God's way. There may be some of you here, you've been saved. You know you've trusted Christ. You've never been obedient to the Lord in baptism. We invite you to come. Some of you, you know this is the church God's led you to be a part of to help win Wichita to faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to invite you to come. Plant your heart with us. We are incomplete till you join with us. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, we're going to stand and sing. While they're singing, you come. Father, I pray for men and women, boys and girls that need Jesus Christ today. And I'm praying that today they'll believe on Jesus, that Jesus, you'll take over a life. You'll plant your banner down. And somebody will be saved. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You stand and sing. Have thine own way, Lord. While they're singing, you come. Pastors are at the front. Don't you wait. You come right now.